This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. We're in the series Missionary Jesus. Uh, we had a break last week. Uh, Sean spoke really, really brilliantly on grace. And I'm speaking on grace, actually, but it's part of our series Missionary Jesus. We've been looking at Jesus' encounters uh, through the Gospel of John, and we're in John 8, if you have a Bible. Um, but just before that, let me just ask you a question. I don't know if you ever met anybody famous. I went to an open day with Jotham on uh, Wednesday. And while he's worrying about what the history course, whether it's social or military history, I'm sitting next to a footballer called Tony Cotty. Does that mean anything to you? One person nods, Everton and West Ham indeed. So I thought I'll sit next to him and be his best buddy for the day. He probably thought, annoying person. It wasn't too bad because, uh, you know, I was in my right mind uh, relatively and all that. But I remember meeting uh, a person called Peter Gabriel. I don't know if his picture's there. That's when he was looking young. And Peter Gabriel at that time was uh, the lead singer of a rock band called... Genesis, okay, a rock band called Genesis. The thing about meeting him was, uh, and, and I'm sorry that this is not good because it might conjure up bad memories, but I, I was in my boxer shorts when I met him. Uh, but actually, so was he. Because uh, we'd, uh, <laughs> so that was a bit embarrassing because I'd played squash with a, a friend who's quite wealthy and who lives in Bath, and Peter Gabriel lives in Bath, and we played squash, and then we were in the changing rooms, and, and I I sort of said to him, and I didn't realise that, that it wasn't an appropriate time to be engaging in conversation, and I said, are you Peter Gabriel? And he, he smiled and said, yes. And I shook his hands and thought, now this is a weird moment. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if, you, um, if you've ever met a pa- famous person, I mean, Naomi met the Queen, I guess the Queen feels uh, that the world is, uh, smells of uh, fresh paints and carpets, and you meet the Queen, you'd obviously want to be on your best behaviour. You'd want to um, leverage up all the things. You'd practice your hosting so you didn't make mistakes. You'd be definitely on. But actually, what happens if you met God? If you met God, you would most definitely, you know, it's kind of a step up from the Pope or whoever your uh, network leader is, uh, a step up from that. You'd certainly want to leverage in your conversations. Oh, yes, Bible in the Year, it's going fantastically well. I'm reading it, doing well. Yeah, You'd want all those good things, those spiritual things, you'd want to leverage them into the conversation, wouldn't you? Or maybe it's just me. But actually, you'd want to leverage those things into conversation. But here we are in John 8. We meet a woman, and uh, she meets God at the most shameful moment of her life. Uh, She meets God at a time when nobody would want to meet God. Nobody would want to encounter God at a time where he thinks that, that meeting God would be the worst possible thing to happen right now. And that's what happened. So the title's called Amazing Grace, A Woman Not for Stoning. And in this story, it's one of my favourite stories. It's almost explosive story. They, that It says in some bits of the Bible, it says that, and some manuscripts do not have this. I felt it's almost like such an explosive story, you can't have it in the Bible. Wow! Because what Jesus does and what happens with this woman is incredible. 
uh, he, she's caught between the forces of religion and judgment and, the, and love and forgiveness, between rules and grace. So uh, let's turn to uh, John 8 and uh, let's read. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple court. So the Mount of Olives is across the valley. So he's gone out to the Mount of Olives in the evening, stayed with some friends. And then in the, in the morning, he comes back into the temple uh, across the valley into Jerusalem. It says, at dawn he appeared again in the t- temple courts where all the people gathered around him. Uh, we find out it's actually a special Sabbath. It's not a Sabbath, but it's a special holiday. It's a Sabbath in that sense uh, where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said, Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? It says they were using this as a, a question, as a trap, in order for a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. We're all in this story. We're all in this story. You might think, well, I've never been caught in the act of adultery, so this story does not apply to me. No, we're all in this story. Because we all will have those moments where if people saw us, we'd be deeply embarrassed. But to come before God, we'd think, oh my word, my cover is blown. And we can look at situations, even recently, we can look at people and say, look, why have they done that? And easily throw our stones. But actually, we're all guilty. We're all in this story. Let me just pray. Lord, I thank you that this is here in, this, in the Bible. Because, Lord, we so easily get a wrong idea of what you're like. But here you are, so scandalously full of grace, scandalously, just seeming to let this woman off. But Lord, I thank you there's so much more going on. I thank you that where love and justice combined, mercy triumphs over justice. And Lord, we see that so wonderfully in this story. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we journey through this story, you would speak to us of your incredible love and grace this Valentine's Day. Amen. Okay, so the first people in the story are the religious people. And obviously religious people think that the way you find favour with God is by keeping the rules. That actually God is interested in your performance, particularly in your visible performance. One of the challenges of trying to keep the rules all the time or trying to look holy is that actually we, we can't do it. You, you can't make it. You cannot look perfect all the time. However much you lie and brush up your act and however much you pretend, the truth is you can't look perfect. So what you end up being is what? You end up being a hypocrite. 
You end up pretending to be fine, but you're not, because actually it's impossible. And the thing about uh, uh, hypocrites and religious people, uh, it creates two things. If they feel we're doing well, we feel incredibly self-righteous and proud. And then if we're doing badly, we become finger-pointing and blame other people because we don't like to take responsibility for ourselves. But, But religion in that sense... Uh, is incredibly destructive. And the myth is that God belongs to the religious types, that God loves the law keepers, the Pharisees, the rule keepers, the ritual type people. That's the myth. And you'd expect when God came to earth, they'd be extremely delighted when Jesus turned up. Because with Jesus, there's no hypocrisy, there's no pride, no lust, no greed, no grasping, no taking, no unfaithfulness, no deceit. You think, man, he fulfills all the law, they should love him. But yet, actually, they hated him. The religious people, shockingly, here is one who is in no deceit, who's broke no laws, who had no sin, but yet they hated him. Why did they hate him? Because Jesus was doing something very, very radical. He was changing the religious currency of the day. Now, the religious currency of the day was that you had to go to the temple and do sacrifices, and you had to keep the rules, and you had to, uh, when you're making your uh, uh, fish and parsley sauce, you had to chop your parsley, nine bits go in the parsley sauce, and a tenth goes in a little small packet that you take to church for the offering. That's what they did. They divided their, their, their dill and their uh, spices. And actually, Jesus says you do all that, but you neglect the law. But they'd got this idea that actually you build up credit in society, that they would walk around with um, long tassels on their garments saying how religious they are. They'd dress in clothes and point the fingers at others and say, well, aren't we doing well? And their, base, their place in society was based on them being at the top of the tree. And their finger-pointing was basically making sure that other people knew that they were below them. And so, but Jesus had come and said, actually, there's a new currency now. And it's got to, you trust in me. There's a new temple, there's a new fulfillment of the law, there's a new currency now, you've got to trust in me. And obviously, what happens is, uh, if, imagine if somebody was changing the currency, uh, and some of you might relate to this on both ends of the scale, but imagine that we said, okay, that we, we're scrapping the pound. Some of you think, well, fine, I don't care, I do dollars. But uh, you're scrapping the pound, and what happens is, all your assets and everything that are, are built up in pounds are now going to be completely worthless. And we're going to have this other currency. It's not transferable, we're just scrapping it. Uh, how would you feel if you had loads of money? You'd feel incredibly angry, wouldn't you? Well, I've built up all these assets. I've got my nice house in Cheltenham now, my, you know, my Georgian pillars and villa, and I'm looking good and I'm feeling good. How dare you scrap the, the, the currency? Who's going to feel good about it? People with huge credit card bills. People who think, man, I've got no money. I'm glad you're scrapping the currency. Let's start again. Let's start fresh. And so Jesus was doing that. All those religious types who'd worked hard to get themselves in credit with God. Jesus is saying, sorry, that counts for nothing. And all the morally bankrupt, in fact, Jesus, when he talked about the Lord's Prayer, it's translated in Luke, says, forgive us our debts. All those who are morally bankrupt, Jesus says, I'm cancelling those as well. So obviously, who loves him and who hates him? The religious people hate him because he's he's saying all your religious efforts are worthless and the people who've done really badly loved him. So the religious types wanted him dead, but they feared the crowd because the bottom line is you've got a very few people who are doing very well and feeling very smug religiously and then you've got the rest of us. So when we know it, we know that actually in one way or another were spiritually bankrupt. So their game plan was to go public. They were going to humiliate Jesus. So they thought of a question. Think, right, let's think of a question. What we're going to do is we're going to get him to look like he doesn't care about what's right and wrong. We're going to get him to deny the law of God. 
And because we know that actually if we give him a situation where love and justice are juxtaposed and put together, then he's going to deny justice, isn't he? He's going to choose love. And that's shocking because we know that's what he's done. And we're going to ask him this question. But if he denies justice, then clearly he can't be, he can't be any good teacher because good, good people care about good stuff. They care that good things happen. They care that righteousness has happened and that think justice is done. But then if he, if he does justice, well, what about love? He can't be a person of love. His message is shown to be hypocritical. Do you understand the tension of the question? Yes, okay. So they don't just bring a, a, a hypothetical question to Jesus. They don't bring a what-if question. They, bring a, they don't bring a what-if a woman was caught in the act of adultery. They bring a real woman. So we have the woman. And they bring a real woman thrown down before Jesus. Now, the interesting thing is it's early in the morning and it's very close to the temple. Um, where do they get a woman uh, in such an act early in the morning? Where would you find such a person? This is a setup here. I think this is a setup. I think they've set up the woman. It's a man's society. They've set up the woman and they find this woman. Aha! And they bring her to Jesus. It's a setup. The thing is, we know it's a setup because who else is, who's missing? The man's missing. And I think, you know, they said this woman should be stoned. This woman should be stoned to death. That's what it says in the law of Moses. Actually, it doesn't say anything about the law of Mo- uh, in the law of Moses a woman should be stoned. It, says, it actually says that if you commit adultery, both should die. So where's the bloke? Where's the man? Is he run away? Maybe he's just put on his religious tassels and his nice robes and he's in there already. In the crowd, blending in, doing his church stuff, pointing the finger. Yes, this woman, she deserves to die. Perhaps he's holding a stone. But it's interesting if we talk about sin. That little word that we don't really talk about in church, but let's call it unrighteousness, let's call it wrongdoing. It's easy how sin brings us to our knees, and, and in one sense that's what happened to this woman. Her unfaithfulness would have been destructive a long time before she's found out. And the thing about let's adultery, but it's true for every uh, command, as it were, of God. God's not closing down our options. When he says do not commit adultery, he's not closing down your options. We believe in a society that loves choice. We think, well, actually, God's saying don't do that. He's closing down our options. He's really against our fun and our pleasure. But actually, he's protecting, protecting society. His rules are there to protect society. His rules are there to draw boundaries around marriages so that, that, so that they don't explode. He's, you know, I, I'm a school teacher. The number of us in this room, and you know, you notice it when you're in school, the number of kids whose families are broken up, or even in this room, the number of us who've experienced divorce or been children and there's been divorce. Uh, it's destructive, and that there is not just because God doesn't like fun, it's because he likes faithfulness. And this unfaithfulness is destroying families week after week. But all our sin does that. All our sin destroys. All our sin brings us to his knees. But I, I thought this was shocking. I don't know if you saw the Ashley Madison. I hope you don't know what the website is, but let me tell you. It's a, it's, a, it's a dating website. Its strapline is, life is short, have an affair. 
And basically what you could do is you could log online and you could put in your details and you could find someone else who wanted to have an affair and have an affair with them. And it was all, shh, no one's going to find out. But what happened is some computer hackers hacked into the website and they took all the names of all the people that had logged on to that website. It happened about three months ago. Did anyone hear about this? Yeah, two or three of you. Now, what the shocking thing was, there were quite a lot of religious types in there. That Sunday, the number of people who had to go before their churches and say, I've been on that website. Um, And the thing is that we all feel that sin is quietly secret and it won't be exposed. But when it is, we feel like the woman. We feel like this, no. Church is the last place I want to be. But yet, for some, that's what's going to happen. Your sins may not be found out, but Jesus says what is done in secret will be proclaimed from the rooftops. So the religious leaders get this woman and they bring her, they bring her to Jesus to kind of test him. But actually what they're doing is something incredibly amazing because the law, the rules, the sense of feeling, I've not made it, I've disappointed, I've broken it down, I've, I've, I've messed up again. The fact that we've broken those rules is not meant to leave us feeling shocking. It's meant to do what these Pharisees didn't know that was supposed to do to make us go to Jesus. When you break the rules, it's not meant to make you hide. It's meant to make you say, I've broken the rules. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And they do what the law is supposed to do. You read the book of Galatians. That's what the law is. It's like a tutor to bring us to Jesus. So the law's not bad. It's there to point out that we can't do it and we need him. So they do that. And the thing is that the woman comes to Jesus. And the thing is, when we're guilty and messed up most, being at the feet of Jesus is the last place we want to be. What I find is when people aren't doing well in church that they're not here. It's harder to come here and put a fake smile on as it is not to come at all. And so she probably thinks the last place I want to be is at the feet of God. The feet of Jesus, that's the worst place to be. But actually far from being the worst place and the most condemning place to be, it's actually what? It's the safest place to be. It's the safest place to be. So we come to Jesus. He's always the hero in our stories. And I don't think he's perplexed with uh, the stone throwers. They had the stones in their hand, uh, ready to stone her. I don't think he's thinking, I don't know what to do here. I would be thinking, I don't know what to do here. I'd be thinking, what do I do? Do I say yes to the law of Moses and stone the woman? Or do I say yes to love and mercy and let her off and look like I don't care about the law? I would be perplexed. But actually, that question is right, has been a question that God has dealt with a long, long time before this question. Before the world was created, he understood the answer to this question. What's he going to do about this question? What's he going to do about love, but yet but people that blow, break his law? He's a God who's incredibly righteous and no law breaking in him at all. What's he going to do with law breakers? But yet he's got love and he's thought about this question a long time before, so he's not perplexed. But let's just pick a bit of the tension in it. So Jesus says, I have not come to destroy the law, but fulfill it. Fine, that's it then. I've not come to destroy the law, but fulfill it. Let's stone the woman. Easy. The Old Testament judicial system shows us a bigger reality that sin always leads to death. Whether you think that's harsh judgment. No, the fact is it does. The fact that you're dying is because you died. Because you've got sin in you. 
Oh, you think it's to do with atoms and chemicals and ultraviolet light from the sun. No, the reason we're all dying is because we're all sinners. The Old Testament judicial system said, we need a sacrifice in your place. But Jesus hadn't come to point the finger, has he? This is what he said in one of the brilliant verses that we saw a few weeks ago. We looked at Nicodemus. This is how much God loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not be destroyed but have eternal life. That's what he said to Nicodemus. For, I love it, for God did not send his son into the world to, say it with me, condemn the world but to save it. He hasn't come to point the finger. He hasn't come to throw the stones. He hasn't come to say you've blown it. Is he soft on sin? Does he not care? Now there's an interesting bit in this story and I like to show how clever I am but I wish I'd thought of it. It comes from a book which I quoted a few weeks ago. Jesus in Middle Eastern eyes by a guy called Ken Bailey. And he, he speculates, what was Jesus doing when he writes on the ground? And you read lots of people and they don't really know but I'm going with this guy because I think this makes sense. Jesus writes on the ground. He bends down and writes on the ground. The crowd obeying, stone her, stone her. Come on, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? Calmly, he writes on the ground. People speculate he's writing people's names. He's drawing a cross on the ground. I don't know. But actually, interestingly, this makes sense. This is what Ken Bailey says, and I think I'm going with it. He's saying, I know the law. Now, here's how stupid the laws have got. On the Sabbath, a special Sabbath, a special day, you weren't allowed to do permanent writing, cheering all the six formats. You weren't allowed to do anything permanent. You weren't allowed to do any work. Yes, hallelujah. You weren't allowed to do any work. You weren't allowed to write permanently. But you could write impermanently. So the teachers are still writing on the blackboards and whiteboards. But you could write impermanently. Marks that weren't permanent were allowed on a Sabbath. So Jesus is writing in the sand. I think Jesus, and this is brilliant, Ken Bailey says this, he says, I'm, Jesus is saying, not one, of the, not one law is going to get broken today. Not one law is going to get broken. I know all your laws, and not one law is going to get broken today. Jesus' answer is brilliant. Einstein is often said, the most bright man that ever lived. No, Jesus wins it hands down. If anyone is without sin, let them cast the first stone. It's a great question. Suddenly, instead of making him the judge, and we find he is, he makes them the judge. He said, okay, if you're qualified to judge on this matter, then you go ahead. If you've never, ever done anything wrong, you you can throw the first stone. Suddenly, the jury is in the dock. Suddenly, he's saying to them, well, have you, how are you doing? How's your, how's your rule keeping doing? How's that doing? Have you kept the rules completely? And you've never done anything wrong, nothing that you can be ashamed of, something that would mean that you could kill a lady. And I think, imagine the moment Jesus is that, and I think Jesus, the lady is, the lady I think is kind of head down, she'd probably be covering her head. She's expecting the stones to come raining in. She'd have seen it before. She'd have seen a stone in before. She'd have seen these guys grab someone and stone them before. She's not expecting anything but the stones to come raining down on her. And I think as she hears the slow clunk of stones hitting the ground, I don't know, is she thinking that they've missed? 
She's waiting for the moment where that first stone lands and they all rain in. But John says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until Jesus was only left. The finger pointing, rule keeping, religious types. It says in Isaiah, all their good works were like, does anyone know what it says? Like filthy rags. They knew it. They knew it. They're as bad as this woman. They're as bad as this woman. Their trust in the Lord neither brought them perfection nor brought them to Jesus, the perfect one. They dropped their stones and walked away. They should have dropped their stones and got on their knees with the woman before Jesus and said, give me mercy. But they didn't. The woman alone is left at the feet of Jesus. I think there's a picture here. It's great, from the Passion of the Christ. The woman alone is there before Jesus. And I don't know who she thinks she's before. Maybe she thinks it's a carpenter from Nazareth. But she... But actually, she's before the judge of all the earth. We've got to understand that, that Jesus isn't playing carpenter from Nazareth today and judge of all the earth in eternity tomorrow. He is who he is. She stands before the judge of all the earth. She stands before who? The one who is without sin, the only one who is without sin, the only one who's actually, righteously, justly could throw a stone at her. The one who's right and just could demand her death. He could do that. And she's there before the judge of all the earth and she's got nothing to say in her defence. Romans says that we'll all stand before God and not a word we'll have to say in our defence. But if God is the harsh, finger-pointing, self-righteous, religious God that, we've, that people think they don't like, then she's going to get stoned. She's going to die. But actually we find staggeringly that God is a God of mercy. I think there's something happening there. She stands before the judge of all the earth that love and mercy flow to her. She look, he looks at her, and I think there's no condemnation in his eyes. He's not come to condemn the world. He looks at her with love and mercy. She is his only hope. But what a hope. We sing that line, don't we? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus, his blood and righteousness. We can trust his goodness. There's no other hope but him. He loves her. Love, and that's why I wanted to sing that. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. It's like she stands in that moment and what's about to happen is this Niagara, this cascade of God's goodness is going to pour all over her. He says these simple words. Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you. These words that he speaks over her, uh, he's not actually going to take them back next week. You've got to hear that, people. When he says you're forgiven, he's not saying I'm going to take it back next week. Imagine here we are two weeks later, a week later, whatever. uh, that, that Here she is again. We've got this woman and here she's, she's at it again. What do you say now, Jesus? 
Shall we stone her now or are you going to let her off again? Yeah, letting her off again? Ridiculous. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to say, now, when she stands before him in eternity, as we'll all stand before Jesus, he's not going to stand before him in eternity. Now say, now lady, I, I know I was in a tight spot that day. It was a tough question that they'd asked me, and it was a bit, and a bit of a tight spot, but the reality is, you're an adulterer, and you're going to die for it. I was just covering my own back. He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. When Jesus speaks, I do not condemn you, he speaks it over us forever. It's shocking. It's scandalous. It's, 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 a, it's an offence. Is he going to just let people off? But actually I know, and we know, because we know the story, there was going to be a death. We go here every week, folks, but don't get complacent about this. There was going to be a death. It was going to be his. It wasn't going to be stones, but he was going to be hit and beaten and bruised and blooded and crucified. There was going to be a death. There was going to be a death that was so perfect, so glorious, so beautiful, it meant he could say to her, I don't condemn you. There was going to be a death. It says in the words of Isaiah, doesn't it, what was going on here? It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. That lady, you. He was pierced for her transgressions. Let's put her into it, but it could be you. He was crushed for her iniquities. The punishment that brought her peace was on him. And by his wounds, she was healed. She, like a sheep, had gone astray and turned to her own way. But the Lord laid on him the sins of her and all of us. Wow! When Jesus speaks over you, I don't condemn you, he's speaking incredible, powerful words that don't just get you off, that actually mean that justice is fulfilled and love triumphs. But actually, it's not just wishful thinking. I don't condemn you, now go away unchanged. I don't think he expected to see her next week doing the same thing with the same guy. I'd have expected he saw the same patterns and the same habits and the same sins week after week after week. The the sins and patterns that we all have and that we all struggle with. He didn't expect to see them week after week because there's something amazing if you really get grace. If you've really received grace, then there's something radically life-transforming. It's not you got off. It's that God changes you. When he says, go and leave your life of sin, he's not just thinking, I hope she's going to be okay and try harder. What happens when you receive the love and grace of God? It transforms you. She was not an adulteress anymore. Not because Jesus said, don't do it, but because the grace of God changed her and compelled her and made her different. 
And that's what happened. I think that, that, that what happens is that, that, that it changes the woman. Now, let, this is probably not true. And, uh, and I see Brian at the back and he'll probably say, mm, I don't think you can say that, but we'll go with it. But actually, I think this woman, let's pretend this woman, we're not told who it is. The reason we're not told who it is because it's all of us. But let's pretend this woman, next time she sees Jesus, she's, he's at a Pharisee's house and she goes, comes into the room and she gets an alabaster jar. Maybe she's earned it through lots of um, inappropriate activities and she breaks it over Jesus and she weeps over his feet and she wipes his hair with her tears. And they say, don't you know what kind of woman this is? He says, those that are forgiven much, love much. Maybe it is her. Maybe she's there at the cross with mother of Jesus and maybe the other Mary. She's at the cross and she's so compelled with the love and grace of this man. When all the disciples run away, she stills and sees him hanging there. Maybe in that moment she gets it. There was going to be a death. And it was for me. My mum used to say a line from him, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. We sang it at my dad's funeral. And the line says, hallelujah, what a saviour. When we break bread now, when we break bread now, that's what we're saying. We're saying we've received his I do not condemn you. We've received a mercy and grace so strong that it changes lives. We've received a mercy and grace that makes us compelled with him, following him everywhere, even to the cross. Who sees him in the... uh, Vicky Allen's going to preach her sermon. I wasn't preaching her sermon. Who sees him? Maybe it's this woman. If she's Mary Magdalene, maybe it's this woman. She sees him risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. The world made right. As we come and break bread now, let's come and... Let's let the love and mercy and grace of God pour down on us. This isn't a a talk about condemnation. But it is a talk about sin. And the thing is, we've all got those things that if they were exposed if it went on the internet if it had to be announced before the church if it had to be told to our friends if they could film us and glimpses into our heads and into our thoughts and into the places we go we'd be ashamed we're all there at the feet of Jesus and I want you to think what is that thing What's that pattern, that habit, that attitude, that thought that's just rolled around with you and rolled around with you? And so far you've never been caught out. But Jesus wants you to come now and receive his no condemnation for that. And to walk out and never do it again. Not because that's the rules. Not because you're scared of getting found out. But because grace and love, when truly applied, change you. So I want you to come in a moment and take bread and wine. What we're doing is, I say this often, that we're 
taking the broken body of Jesus by faith. We're taking that sacrifice on our behalf by Him. We're taking in the righteous life of Christ. We're taking in the grace of God. Paul says, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, broke it. Having gave it to his disciples, said, this is my body, broken for you. Not stoned, but just as effective, just as painful, just as bitter. And then after supper, took the cup and said, this is my blood. This is the cup of the new promise of grace and mercy and forgiveness and life. Do this as often as you drink it and remember me. You might not have ever stood cowering at the feet of Jesus. You may have never looked in his eyes and said, I want mercy. And if you're not a Christian, if you've never done that, this meal's not for you. There will be a death and it will be yours. But if you've received mercy and you want to receive mercy again afresh, come and take and eat. Be satisfied. Walk out full of grace, transformed, loved. Lord Jesus. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.